As adult humans, there are certain things that we need to be able to do to take care of ourselves. We need to know how to do laundry, we need to know how to pay bills, and we need to know how to cook a few basic meals. Because this isn't a laundry or bill paying blog, we aren't going to talk about either of those. Today, we are going to look at a few meals that everyone should know how to make. Now, none of the meals or recipes that we'll talk about uh, are overly complex. This is a basic cooking course after all. But of course, that doesn't mean they aren't delicious. Okay, enough chit chat, let's get to it. I'm Chef Ben, this is Food in 5, and this is Basic Things Everyone Should Be Able to Cook, Part 1. Starches. Before we get too far into this, I wanna just touch on rice and potatoes first. A key component to a balanced meal is having some kind of carb be it bread, rice, pasta, or potatoes. We're gonna talk about pasta a little later on, so let's take a look at potatoes and then rice. Potatoes. Mashed potatoes. When done well, there are few, very few things in this world better than good mashed potatoes. By good, I mean smooth, creamy, buttery, and well-seasoned. Potatoes like that can be the star of any plate, no matter what the main attraction is supposed to be. But how do we make potatoes like that? What's the secret? Obviously, I'm going to tell you. The right potato for the job. Believe it or not, there are right and wrong potatoes to use for mashed potatoes. For my money, I prefer a russet or white potato for mashed potatoes. I'll get into the reasons for this in a second. But before I do, I want to say that Yukon Gold Potatoes and a few other waxy varieties can make and do make delicious mashed potatoes too especially since these varieties of potato tend to have a superior flavor. However, it is a more difficult process and requires a little more finesse to mash these. This is due to the fact that when these types of potatoes are cooked, they tend to get gummy. This is especially true when they start to lose their heat. Because of this, they have to be processed very quickly after cooking. They usually also require a higher portion of cream and butter to get the desired consistency. I save these for special occasions. Russets. To me, there are many benefits to using a russet potato to make mashed potatoes. And if you live in the States, uh, you know, Idaho potatoes are the same thing. First and foremost, their size is convenient. Russet potatoes are a fairly large variety, which makes them easy to hold while peeling, and you get more potato per potato. They are also cheap and readily available. The russet potato is dry and mealy. This means it doesn't generally hold a lot of water and it mashes very easily. However, like most potatoes, if overboiled, russets can absorb and hold large amounts of water that will make mashed potatoes watery. When cooking russets for mashed potatoes, peel and dice them into evenly sized cubes. Rinse the potatoes under cold water until the water runs clear. This will wash off excess starch. Next, put the potatoes in a pot of cold water, add enough salt to make the water taste like the ocean. I suggest about one big teaspoon per liter of water. Bring the potatoes to a boil and cook only until the potatoes are tender. Then drain. Let them dry. One of the most key, one of the keys to really great mashed potatoes is to make sure the potatoes are dry before mashing them. This is done in two main ways. First of all, as I already mentioned, don't overcook them. There really isn't any coming back from this. The potatoes will become waterlogged, and then there really isn't much you can do about it. 
The second way, or rather the second step to drying the potatoes, is to let them steam dry in the colander. Don't get confused by this. All this means is that once the potatoes are cooked, drain them as you normally would in a colander, and then just leave them alone for a few minutes. Three, four, or five minutes is more than enough. You will see all the steam coming up for the potatoes, and you may think that the potatoes are losing heat, and they are a little bit, but more importantly, they're losing moisture. All that steam is moisture leaving the potatoes and drying them out. You'll even notice a color change. The potatoes go from a mild yellow color to a dry white color. That's what you want. Cream and butter. While the potatoes are steam drying in a colander, take the opportunity to heat up the cream and butter. I say cream, but you can use milk if you prefer. However, cream will provide a richer flavor and a better texture to the potatoes. Heating up the dairy before adding it to the potatoes will help keep the potatoes hot. Cold mashed potatoes aren't nearly as good as hot ones. Since the potatoes are in the colander, you can use the potato, the pot the potatoes were cooked in to heat up the cream and butter. Now, how much cream and butter should you use? For four to five russets, I use between a quarter and a half cup of cream and two tablespoons of butter. But obviously, if you want to use a little more or a little less, that's up to you. Seasoning. Potatoes on their own are pretty bland. They need salt and pepper. And a little seasoning, to add a little seasoning, excuse me, to the cream and butter, then add more to taste once the potatoes are mixed in. How much salt and pepper should you use? For four to five russets, I generally use about one to one and a half teaspoons of kosher salt, not table salt, kosher salt, and a quarter to a half teaspoon of pepper. Really, though, it comes down to taste. Add a little taste and add more as needed. Masher v. Mixer v. Food Mill. There are three main tools that people use to mash potatoes. They are a regular old potato masher, a mixer, like a KitchenAid, or a food mill. I'm much more partial to the food mill than to the other twos. Now, I the other two options. I, I don't know why I just said the other twos. The other two options. Now, I prefer using a food mill to make mashed potatoes because it yields the smoothest potatoes you'll ever have. Using a handheld masher, it is next to impossible to get all the lumps out of the potato. As for a mixer, I find I rarely get all the lumps out, and the risk of overmixing the potatoes uh, is very high, and this will make the potatoes gummy and pasty. A food mill, is, it's essentially just um, kind of like a bowl with a piece in the bottom that has small holes in it. When you put the potatoes in and there's a crank, you push, and the crank forces the potatoes down through the holes. That's it. So the potatoes have been cooked and drained. The cream and butter have been heated and seasoned with salt and pepper. Set the food mill over the pot. Add the potatoes right into the mill. Mill them, then mix to combine the potatoes with the cream and butter. What you'll have will be absolutely delicious, smooth, creamy potatoes. You can't beat them. Smashed potatoes. What are smashed potatoes, you may be asking? Smashed potatoes are potatoes, usually small ones, that have been boiled until tender and then smashed with the back of a spoon or masher. They are often, or they're different from mashed potatoes in two main ways. Number one, the skin is left on them. Number two, they are chunkier. The goal isn't to have one smooth, consistent texture. It is to have lumps and chunks. This style of potato can be made in a variety of ways. There are actually two on this list. The first one is made by mixing buttermilk, butter, and salt and pepper into the smashed potatoes. Imagine that you're using some portions, uh, the same portions you would for regular mashed. 
the buttermilk will give the potatoes a really nice fresh flavor. And that flavor combined with the texture uh, makes these potatoes a really unique potato dish and one that is terrific for summer. It goes great with like fried chicken or, or pork chops. Lemon roasted potatoes. Potatoes tossed with lemon, olive oil, thyme, garlic, smoked paprika, salt, and pepper, then roasted until crisp. Damn. Just about any kind of potato can be used to make this dish. I like to use either russet or Yukon gold potatoes, but anything will work. The first step is to combine the lemon juice, or the juice from one lemon, two to three tablespoons of olive oil, three to four sprigs of thyme, two cloves of crushed garlic, one teaspoon smoked paprika, a big pinch of both salt and pepper, and then mix all this together and give it a taste. Take some potatoes, cut them into wedges, and toss them with the lemon, olive oil mixture, and spread on a parchment-lined sheet pan. Bake in a 375 degrees oven for 35 to 40 minutes or until the potatoes are cooked through and crispy. They'll have to be flipped at least once about halfway through cooking. These potatoes go great with just about anything. Now, uh, you can go to chefsnotes.com forward slash basic dash things dash everyone dash should dash be dash able dash to dash cook. I'm sorry, that's a really long uh, URL. I'll just share a link in the description to this video. Um, if you want really, really crispy potatoes that are soft in the middle, boil the potatoes first just until they're cooked through. Take them out, drain them, let them dry a little bit, and then cook them as I described. Rice. I can't count the number of times people have told me about all the problems they have cooking rice. It's too wet. They burnt it. The rice is crunchy. Listen, I know to some people this may seem crazy, myself included, but the struggle is real for these people. And so today, I thought I would take the opportunity to talk in depth about cooking rice and how to get it perfect every time. The right rice for the job. There are over 40,000 varieties of cultivated rice out there, so choosing the right one for your needs can be difficult. Really, though, there are only three to four varieties you need to think about in everyday cooking. They're basmati rice, brown rice, usually whole grain basmati, sticky rice, such as sushi rice, jasmine rice, and arborio or carnarali rice, which are both used to make risotto. Though both basmati and jasmine rice make good all-purpose rice, I prefer basmati as it is generally a bit cheaper, more readily available, um, and the grains stay apart a little better because jasmine is a shorter grain. Now, if I'm making sushi, fried rice, or other foods from Japan, China, Korea, Thailand, or Vietnam, I typically use sticky rice or jasmine rice. Uh, this will often be labeled as sushi rice, the sticky rice will be. If I'm making risotto, it either has to be arborio, which I find easier to find, or carnarali, which I prefer of the two. Brown rice I use if I feel I need a bit of a healthy boost or if I hate myself. But this is rare for me, um, but it is great in burrito bowls. I'm just joking about hating myself. I don't really like brown rice that much. I don't think anybody does, but it's good for you. Now, typically, I will have at least two to three of the above varieties on hand at any given time. Notice that I didn't list minute rice in there. To be blunt, I think minute rice is garbage rice. All the flavor has been taken away in the name of convenience. White rice takes usually around 17 to 25 minutes to cook from start to finish. While it's cooking, the rest of the dinner can be prepared. I honestly see no reason for minute rice. But that's just me. If you want to use it, use it. Just my personal opinion. Rinsing. It is generally suggested that you rinse rice until the water runs clear for two main reasons. First of all, to remove any dirt or grime. Second of all, to rinse away any excess starch. 
it is usually a good idea to rinse rice. However, if you do, it is very important that you drain off as much water as possible. Any excess water left from rinsing may lead the rice to being soggy or mushy when cooked. If you feel as though you are not getting enough water out of your rice, cut back the amount of water you're adding when cooking by a tablespoon or two. This should compensate for the oversaturation. Follow the instructions. This may seem way too obvious, but follow the cooking instructions on the package the rice came in. Different brands of rice, even if it is the same type of rice, may suggest different ratios of liquid to rice in different cooking times. That is why it is always important to read the instructions. Now, having said that, I should point out that sometimes these instructions are just wrong. Sometimes you follow them perfectly and the rice just doesn't turn out. So follow the instructions the first time you make the rice. If it turns out, great. If it doesn't, adjust. Things to look out for. If the rice is very wet and mushy, cut back on the amount of water you added to the rice. If the rice is very wet but hard, cook the rice for longer. On occasion, the rice may be hard and very dry. In this case, you need to increase the amount of liquid you added to the rice. Generally, for rice, the cooking process is as follows. Combine the liquid, rice, salt, and a little fat in a pot. Bring it to a boil on high heat. Once it starts to boil, turn the heat down to low, cover the pot, and simmer. Once the allotted time has passed, remove the pot from the heat and leave it alone without lifting the lid for about half the amount of time as the initial cooking time. So if your rice, if you cook the rice, excuse me, with the lid on for 17 minutes, let it sit for at least eight to nine minutes, then fluff with a fork and serve. Cooking time times vary depending on type of rice and how it is processed, so make sure to read the instructions on the package. Roasted chicken. A well-cooked roast chicken is one of the rare pleasures in life. Crispy, buttery, golden skin with tender, flavorful meat hidden below the surface. What could be better than that? But roasting a chicken isn't something that people are just able to do. Its simplicity is extremely complex and takes practice and time to learn. In some ways, it feels like roasting a chicken is a dying skill. Most of us are much more likely to pick up a rotisserie chicken from the grocery store than to roast one ourselves. Of course, and I'm sure it goes without saying, there is no comparison when it comes to taste and quality. A home-roasted chicken is 100 times better, but it takes time and effort to prepare. The key to a good roast chicken is getting all of the skin nice and crispy without overcooking the rest of the bird. There are a few simple things that you can do to make this process easier. Dry the skin. Removing moisture from the skin of the chicken is the single most important step in getting really crispy and brown skin. This doesn't just count for chicken. If you want a really nice sear on a pork chop or steak, make sure the surface is dry first. This can be done in one of two ways. Number one, dry the skin with a paper towel. This is not my personal favorite as I find it doesn't do a fantastic job. However, in a pinch, if you're pressed for time, this is the go-to technique. Get a few paper towels and dry the chicken inside and out. It's pretty straightforward. The reason you want to dry the chicken inside is that any extra moisture inside the chicken will add moisture to it to the oven, well, which will prevent the skin from crisping. The goal is to remove as much moisture from the surface of the chicken as possible. The second way you can do this is you can air dry the chicken. Air drying the chicken is exactly what it sounds like. This is letting the chicken dry naturally over a period of time. To do this, the chicken is placed on a rack, set over a pan or baking sheet, and placed in the fridge for a day or two uncovered. 
Now, I know that this seems foreign to a lot of people, putting a chicken in the fridge uncovered, but it works and it is the technique. The reason you want the chicken on the rack is because liquid will pool at the point of contact. If it is sitting on a flat surface, this will lead to there being one big wet spot on the chicken that won't brown and it looks pretty gross. The pan under the, under the rack is there to collect any drippings. Leaving the chicken uncovered, as I said, may seem like a really weird and uncomfortable thing to do, but it is what allows the skin to dry. If the chicken is wrapped, moisture will get trapped and the skin will stay damp. This process usually takes two days and you may have to flip the chicken after the first day. It's done when the skin is dry and tightly clinging to the meat. Be aware that leaving raw chicken uncovered in the fridge is perfectly safe as long as other foods aren't coming into contact with it and it isn't dripping on foods. Again, keep the chicken on a rack with a pan under it to prevent juices from running on other foods. Also, keep the chicken on the bottom rack of your fridge and make sure other food items are stored well away from it. Cooking the chicken. Now that the skin of the chicken is dry, it is almost ready to cook. There are only two things that need to be done first. The first step is to grease up the bird. I generally use a good quality olive oil for this or clarified butter. I find regular butter has too much water in it, in which, uh, which causes the skin to soften. So rub the chicken inside and out with olive oil. The only thing left to do is to season the chicken very well inside and out with salt. That's it. Once the chicken is oiled and seasoned, put it in a roasting pan with a rack and fire it in the oven heated to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Now comes the fun part. The best way to ensure that the chicken gets evenly crispy on all sides is to rotate it every 20 minutes or so. Start the chicken breast up. After the first 20 minutes, rotate it onto its left side. Then after another 20 minutes, rotate it breast down, and so on. Continue doing this until the chicken is cooked through, and yes, it is worth the effort. How long the chicken takes depends on the size of the chicken and the quality of your oven. Generally, 15 to 20 minutes per pound is suggested. The only way to know for sure if the chicken is done is with a thermometer stuck into the deepest part of the thigh. Temperature should be between 168 degrees Fahrenheit and 170 degrees Fahrenheit. Basting and resting. If you notice that there are spots of the chicken that just aren't crisping up the way, uh, you may want to baste them or brush those spots with a little more oil. You shouldn't need to worry about basting the whole chicken. With the chicken cooked through and the skin nice and crispy, all that is left is to let the chicken rest. In some ways, this is the hardest part. The chicken will look so good, like a cartoon roast chicken for Bugs Bunny or The Simpsons. But leave it alone. Don't touch it for at least 10 minutes. 15 to 20 is better. Let the chicken rest uncovered on a rack it was cooked on. This will allow the juices to redistribute throughout the chicken, keeping it juicy and moist. Resting will also give air time to circulate around the chicken, causing it to crisp up even more. While the chicken is resting, you can make your gravy or your sides. Pork chops. If you don't love pork chops, you've probably never had them cooked to perfection, or you just don't eat pork, which is completely possible, but not at all what we're talking about today. Let's assume for argument's sake that you don't like pork chops because whenever you've eaten them, they're overcooked and dry. This is a very common problem, especially with thin grocery store pork chops that we're all used to. So what can be done? How can we prevent pork chops from becoming dry pieces of particle board that absorb all the moisture out of our mouths? How can we add flavor before we even cook them? How can we make something that seems so mundane the star of any meal? 
So many questions, so many answers. Part of the problem with pork chops is the part of the pig, excuse me, is the part of the pig that they come from. It is a very lean part of the animal. The less fat, the less flavor, and the more likely to dry out while cooking. There's one bonus, however, because these muscles don't get a ton of work compared to leg muscles, so they are very tender. The fear of pork. The big fear people have with pork is that they, if they undercook it, they will get trichinosis. With modern farming and butchering techniques, this isn't actually much of a worry. There's only been one case of trichinosis in Canada since 1980. It happened in 2013, and it was from a homegrown hog, not a commercially produced one. Having said that, I'm not suggesting that you start eating rare pork. What I'm saying is that pork doesn't have to be overcooked. It just has to be cooked to a final temperature of 165 or 74 degrees Celsius. By final, I mean the temperature that it comes to after resting. So cook a pork chop to 160 and let it rest. Bring it up to five degrees without overcooking it. As a bit of a side note, side note, excuse me, you are much more likely to get trichinosis from undercooked game meat like venison than you are from pork. The most common occurrences in Canada come from bear and walrus meat. A bone to pick. Another problem with pork chops is that they're often sold with either a rib bone or a piece of spine attached. I prefer bone in pork chops, but the meat nearest the bone takes longer to cook and the rest of the pork chop. So by the time that meat is cooked, the rest is overcooked. This is a problem, especially when people are afraid of undercooked pork. There are some ways the pork chop can, there are some ways to cook the pork chop completely through, including around the bone and keep the meat tender. But this process can be complicated like confit, which is when it's cooked in oil, or require special equipment like a sous vide cooker. So what we have to think about is either eating pork with the meat around the bone a little underdone, or finding a way to keep the meat tender while still cooking it, cooking it through around the bone. Brine and marinade. Brines. The difference between a marinade and a brine can be hard to pinpoint. The key is that they serve different purposes. We'll get into that in a second, but I think an easy way to think of it is that a brine is salty and a marinade is acidic. A brine is a solution of water and salt. Usually sugar and other flavorings are added as well. I, I actually talked about this a bit and gave a recipe a few posts back and you can find a link to it on this post which again I'll share the link to in the comments. Um, so I talked about brines when I talked about ribs. The traditional purpose of a brine was to preserve meat over a long period of time. Now we don't often use a brine for this anymore because we have fridges and freezers. Today there are two main reasons to use a brine. The first is to impart flavor through herbs and aromats. The second purpose is Twofold, brining has a tenderizing effect because the salt breaks down certain muscle filaments. The salt also causes the proteins to absorb and hold more moisture. What that means is that brining pork chops makes them more flavorful, more tender, and juicier. Brined pork chops are more forgiving than unbrined ones. They can stand out, uh, stand up to a little overcooking and still be juicy and tender. This means that the meat around the bone can be cooked without sacrificing the rest of the chop. Because marinades are by their nature acidic, they break down muscle fibers, making them more tender. The problem with marinades is that they are slow to penetrate the meat. This can cause an overly acidic exterior with an untouched interior. Due to the nature of marinades, they are generally suggested for smaller pieces of meat or even meat cut into thin strips. Marinades can be absolutely used for pork chops. There's no question about it. 
But for my money, a brine is much more forgiving, forgiving, excuse me, and a much better option. Marinades. Because marinades are by their nature acidic and they break down muscle fibers, making meat more tender. Problem, as I said with marinades, is that they're slow to penetrate the meat. This can cause an overly acidic exterior with an untouched interior. Now do oh, I just read this, I'm so sorry. Cooking pork chops. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. When cooking pork chops, uh, barbecue ex excluded, I prefer a two-stage cooking process. All that means is that I start them in a pan and finish them in the oven or in a liquid like a sauce. Starting them in a pan or skillet allows me to brown the surface of the pork chops. This adds depth to the flavor of the pork. This also cuts down on my cooking time. Imagine I have two identical pork chops. I put one directly in the oven. The other I sear on all sides in a pan and then put in the oven. Which one will cook quicker? The seared one will cook quicker, even when taking the time to sear it in, into account. The seared pork chop still takes less time to cook compared to the one that went directly in the oven. Direct heat versus indirect heat. The reasoning behind this little experiment is pretty straightforward. Cooking in a pan or on a burner is a direct heat transfer cooking method, meaning the heat is coming from the element, which is in contact with that metal pan, which is in contact with the pork chop. This contact allows for a fairly smooth and consistent transfer of heat from the burner through the pan to the pork chop. An oven is an indirect heat source. The heat coming off of the elements has to travel through the air present in the oven. Air is a terrible conductor of heat. By the time the heat reaches the pork chop, it has lost a lot of its energy and heating ability. So then why not cook the pork chop fully in the pan? Although direct heat is an efficient way to transfer heat energy, it isn't great at evenly distributing heat throughout the item being cooked. So you can cook a pork chop completely in a pan. It is, however, fairly difficult to get a nice, even cook on the chop. The other problem with completely cooking in the pan is heat management. Now imagine you have a pork chop that is one inch thick, thick excuse me, that you're cooking in a pan. There's going to be a very large temperature variance from the part of the pork that is in contact with the pan and the part that is in contact with the air. Every time you flip the pork chop, there's going to be this heating and cooling cycle. An oven, though not really efficient, holds a fairly stable temperature. This means that there will be less of a temperature variance from the top to the bottom of the pork chop. This makes for a more even cook. This is why I prefer a two-stage cooking process for pork chops. Put a lid on it. There is the option to put a lid on your pan and create a little oven inside. This still raises the issue of direct heat versus indirect heat transfer. The only real way to avoid this is liquid. If I were to add some wine stock, cream and mushroom soup, as we're probably all familiar with, or sauce to the pan, this could balance out the heat. There's a danger of using liquid in this way. If you're using liquid to finish your pork chops, it is important that you don't boil the meat. Boiling will toughen the pork. Uh, and quickly overcook it. Ideally, when finishing your pork chop in a liquid, this would be the process you would follow. Sear the pork chops on all sides, remove from, from the pan, drain off any excess fat. Add your liquid, bring to a boil, reduce the heat to low, and add the pork chops back in. Put a lid on the pot and simmer for five to 10 minutes. This liquid process has the added benefit of a more even distribution of heat. This will cook the meat closest to the bone along with everything else. Grilling. Grilling is an entirely different ballgame. 
and one that I unfortunately don't really have time to get into today. In the spring, uh, maybe next spring, I'll do a whole grilling post and answer any questions you may have. Saucing. There's one more benefit of the two-stage cooking method. Uh, I can develop that nice sear on the surface and then add sauce to the pork chops when they go in the oven. Sauce doesn't have to be barbecue sauce. It could be some white wine, stock, brandy, and cream, any number of things. This allows me to develop a deeper flavor that a sear provides while still enjoying my favorite sauce. Steak. What's better than a perfectly cooked steak? Whether it's a ribeye, tenderloin, T-bone, strip loin, or sirloin, there's simply nothing better. I know that there are people out there, meat eaters, that don't really like steak. Often the reason they give is that they don't like it when the blood comes out of the steak or on their plate, stains their potatoes. They find steak tough, but they don't like the flavor. <clears throat> Today, I'm going to show you that all of these issues that many people have with steak are easily fixed by choosing the right steak and the proper cooking techniques. If I had to choose a favorite cut of steak, it would unquestionably be ribeye. Why? Well, because I love the fat content of a ribeye. When the meat is tender and flavorful, it just suits me. What about you? Do you have a favorite cut of steak? Do you know the difference between cuts of steak? Choosing the right steak for you. Imagine that in your whole life, you've never had steak before. You walk into a butcher shop. You see all the options, all the potential. How do you know what to choose? How do you know what steak is going to be right for you? Now, even if you've been eating steak your whole life, there's a really good chance that you eat what you're familiar with and what you grew up with. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, or if you were an adult in that period, there's a really good chance that you think that a T-bone steak is the pinnacle of flavor and decadence. You grew up in the 80s, you may think that a porterhouse is everything. In the 90s, it was all tenderloin and strip loin. Now it's strip loin and ribeye. Times change, tastes change. However, there is a steak for every taste and time. Choosing the right steak for you takes some thought. You have to know what you like and what you don't like. And if you don't know that, you need to experiment with a bunch of different steaks to find out what a fun experiment it will be. When I choose a steak, I am looking for fat content, tenderness, and flavor. That is why I prefer a ribeye steak to other cuts. The ribeye is the fattiest cut, and because of that, I find it has the most flavor. Because I love ribeyes doesn't necessarily mean that you will. To find out what might be right for you, let's take a look at each of the five most common cuts of steak individually. Ribeye. The ribeye is cut from the rib section of the cow. It is a lightly used muscle, which is why it is so tender. It is also the most marbled of all the steaks, which give it a high fat content and more flavor than other steaks. If you like fatty, juicy, flavorful meat, then a ribeye is right for you. If you prefer something a bit leaner, you're looking for the uh, you're looking in the wrong place. These are best cooked medium rare to medium. New York strip loin. The strip loin is the most common steak for people who don't really know much about steak. It isn't a particularly flavorful or tender cut of meat. Strip loin is cut from the short loin of the cow, which sits right behind the rib section near the back end. In comparison to the ribeye, it has little marbling or fat content. It does have a layer of gristle and fat on the top of the steak, which may or may not be cut off prior to cooking. Sirloin steak. The sirloin is essentially the same thing as the strip loin. 
The only difference is that it comes from a little further back on the cow. A sirloin is a part of the T-bone steak. Depending on where you are in the world, sirloin may just refer to a strip loin, or strip loin may refer to sirloin. There really isn't too much difference. Tenderloin. As you can probably guess from its name, the tenderloin is very tender. It is the most tender of all steaks, but it is next to no fat content, and personally, I find it has very little flavor. In other parts of the world, the tenderloin is called the filet um, or eye filet. The tenderloin is a part of the cow that never do, really does much work, hence why it is so tender. It is a great steak for those that don't really like to chew. A good tenderloin should basically melt in your mouth. Tenderloin would never be my first choice for a steak as it is typically one of the most expensive cuts, and again, I don't find it that flavorful. Having said that, if it's put in front of me, I would happily eat it or any steak really. T-bone steak. T-bone steak is one of those cuts that has a reputation as being the gold standard of steak. As the name suggests, it has a T-bone, T-shaped bone. This bone separates two cuts of meat, of meat excuse me, which make up the T-bone steak. These cuts are tenderloin and sirloin or strip loin. A tenderloin and a sirloin do not cook in the same amount of time. And so you may order a T-bone and get half of it perfectly cooked, and the other half is going to be either overcooked or undercooked. Now, in theory, a T-bone steak is a great idea. You kind of get the best of both worlds. However, in practice, it never really works out. If you're wondering, uh, Porterhouse is a T-bone steak that is cut from further back on the cow. It has a greater portion of tenderloin where the T-bone has more strip loin or sirloin. Conclusion about steaks. If you're just dipping your toe into the wonderful world of steaks, I should just suggest starting with a strip loin. It has a decent flavor and it's fairly tender and it isn't very expensive. If you really like tender things with a, not a ton of flavor, then you have money to burn then the tenderloin is for you. If you've been eating strip loins and tenderloins your whole life, but have always shied away from the ribeye, it might be time to try it. And if you're the type of person who likes to live on the age on the edge and doesn't mind a little extra fat because you know it means a lot of extra flavor, then the ribeye is definitely right for you. Cooking steaks at home. It is all well and good to know how what type of steak you want, but if you have no idea how to cook it once you get it home, what's the point? Well, there are three main ways that people can cook steak at home. All three techniques can yield delicious steak, but if you know what you're doing, so let's take a look. Sorry. All three techniques can yield a delicious steak if you know what you're doing. So let's take a look. Barbecue. Probably the cooking method that most people jump to when talking about steaks is barbecue. There is a good reason for this. Steaks cooked over an open flame can be amazing as long as the person cooking knows what they're doing. There are a lot of quote-unquote grill kings out there who burn the outside of their steaks to a crisp and leave the inside raw or way overcooked. The secret to really good barbecue steak is simple. Heat management. And I know in the States uh, you refer to barbecue as only uh, kind of slow cooking over wood or in parts of the States you do. In Canada, we refer to anything uh, cooked on a grill as barbecue. Oftentimes, people will crank the barbecue and or grill and try to cook a steak over that high heat. This can work if you're careful and you're paying attention. However, there's a big risk of burning the steak and ruining your dinner. For thinner cuts of meat that cook quickly, this isn't much of a concern 
uh, and you really want that high heat for those. For anything thicker than your little finger, you may want a more moderate, consistent heat. This will give you a uniform temperature throughout the steak without burning the crap out of, this, out of the outside of the steak. For really large cuts, you may want to start them on very high heat to get a really nice sear on the outside, and then turn the heat way down, close the lid, and finish cooking in that way. A broiler. The broiler in most people's ovens is rarely used. Some people don't know how to use it, but if done right, you can cook the best home-cooked steaks you've ever had. The broiler setting on your oven turns the top element on high. This creates a very high direct heat. This works very well for cooking smaller cuts of meat or for searing the outside of bigger cuts at the beginning or at the end of cooking. The downside to using the broiler is that it is going to heat your house up and the fat splattering from the steak is going to make a mess in your oven. It's totally worth it, though. This method can cook steak very quickly, and so it's important to keep an eye on the steak uh, the whole time it's cooking. Cooking a steak this way, you're going to get a really nice sear on the outside, really nice browning, and then a really nice color inside. Stovetop. For my money, there is really only one way to cook a steak on a stovetop, and that is in a cast iron pan. You have to get the pan very hot before you put the steak in. I don't usually add oil to the pan as enough fat comes out of the steak. And this method is great for cuts any, uh, any size, but bigger cuts may need to be finished in the oven. The big upside to cooking steak in a cast iron pan is that you get a beautiful even sear. You also have more control over the cook because you are hands-on the steak the whole time. You can base it with butter and herbs. This is my preferred method of cooking steak at home. The downside to this technique is that if you don't have a good hood vent, your house is going to be filled with smoke. Also, your stovetop is going to be covered in grease spatter. Um, no matter how you're cooking your steak or what kind of steak you're choosing, there are a few tips that you should know that will give you the best uh, steak possible. Drying, just like when we talked about the chicken. When you get home with your steak, unwrap it and put it in the fridge overnight, ideally on a rack, so both sides can breathe. This will dry the surface of the steak, allowing you to get the best sear you can, and, excuse me, and concentrating the flavor of the meat. Warming. Before you cook your steak, let it come to room temperature. That's right, let the steak sit out on your counter for 30 to 60 minutes prior to cooking. It takes less energy to heat something that is room temperature than it does to heat something that is fridge temperature. This will allow for a more even and quicker cook. As your steak will be cooking in less time, it will have less residual heat and have less carryover. Carryover cooking is when that residual heat in an item continues to cook it once it has been removed from the heat source. The greater the mass of an item uh, and the longer it has been cooking, the greater the amount of residual heat and thus the more carryover cooking. Resting. After the steak is cooked, it is very important to let it rest. The reason why involves that residual heat we were just talking about. When you take a steak off of a heat source, it takes time for that heat to dissipate. And that heat, as that heat is dissipating, the molecules within the steak start slowing down. As the molecules within the steak start to slow down and cool, the fat and muscle proteins that have been liquefied by the heat starts to cool and solidify. This allows for an even distribution of fat and moisture throughout the steak. If you were to cut into a steak as soon as it comes off the heat, all these juices would come pouring out. The rarer the steak, the more bloody those juices will be. If you take that steak, same steak, no matter how rare, and let it rest for 5 to 10 minutes depending on its size, those juices will remain in the steak when it's cut. As I'm sure you can imagine, 
A steak can't be juicy if all of its juices are on a plate. Resting allows for that steak to keep its juices and remain juicy and tender. Seasoning steak. Steak isn't cheap and can actually be very expensive depending on what you're buying. Because it's so expensive, I stay away from overpowering sauces and flavorings. I actually want to taste the steak. When it comes to seasoning a steak, I keep it very simple. I generally stick to salt and pepper, occasionally adding garlic and onion powder, and maybe Old Bay seasoning. That's about as far as I go. If I'm roasting a larger steak or a whole strip loin, prime rib, or tenderloin, I may do a garlic and herb rub. The thing is all these flavors complement the flavor of the steak rather than overpowering it. I also may base my steak with butter, garlic, and herbs while it's cooking. Again, this complements the flavor of the steak. Basting gets the flavor into all the nooks and crannies of the steak, making it more delicious. When it comes to sauces, I keep it fairly simple. Flavored butter is always a great option. You just mix herbs and flavorings into the butter, put it on steak, and let it melt. Delicious. I also like chimichurri, which is an herb sauce from South America that works incredibly well with steak. Uh, I am also partial to pan sauces, demi-glace, and horseradish. I always avoid barbecue sauces and things like HP sauce on steak. I find these completely cover up the flavor of the steak, making it a waste. If someone is serving me a steak with an overpowering sauce, my first assumption is that they are serving me a low-quality steak. The sauce is there to cover up the low quality. Always be wary of strong sauces. When it comes to steak, simple is always best. Pay the money for a good steak and you won't need any sauce at all. Temperature. One final thing that we haven't touched on yet is temperature. How do you like your steak cooked? Well, it depends on the steak. I find that with a ribeye, medium is perfect. Anything less than that and the fat doesn't really get a chance to cook properly. When it comes to strip loins, rare to medium rare is preferable. And for tenderloin, a medium rare is the perfect temperature. On TV and in restaurants, you'll see chefs and cooks checking the doneness of steaks simply by touching them. We can do this because of practice. When you cook a 1,000 steaks, you get a pretty good idea of how they feel and how they act. You can tell the difference between a strip loin uh, that is medium and a tenderloin that is medium. They feel very different. And I also recommend using a thermometer rather than guessing at the temperature. For steaks, the temperature is 130 degrees Fahrenheit, medium rare. Or excuse me, for rare steaks, the temperature is 130 degrees Fahrenheit, medium rare is 135 to 140, medium is 140 to 150, medium well is 150 to 160, and well done is 160 degrees Fahrenheit to 170 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a lot more to say and a lot of basic things that you should be able to cook to talk about. We're going to break this up into a couple different parts. So on Monday, we'll come back and we'll talk about fish and pasta and a few other things. Uh, and then we maybe even extend this to Wednesday. I'm not sure yet. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this post. I know it's very long, but there is so much information in here. Um, and again, I'll share the link to the post, which is chefsnotes.com slash basic dash things dash everyone dash should dash be dash able dash to dash cook. And I will share that link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a fantastic uh, weekend. I will see you right back here on Monday. I'm Chef Ben. This is Food and Five, and you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Chef Ben Kelly. You can find all these posts and much more written out 
at chefsnotes.com. I'll talk to you soon, everybody. Have a good one.